Romans 15, 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given to me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Would you bow with me? It's been good to be together this morning, our Father. We've had conversation that has been encouraging to us with one another. We've enjoyed the fellowship, the relationship, the intimacy of the one anothering, sharing life together. That's been a blessing. We've been reminded in Sunday school and now in the scripture readings of your priorities for our lives through scripture reading. It's good to have our hearts reoriented to you by this inerrant, authoritative, powerful, living word. We've enjoyed the communion of prayer, joining our hearts together in a common prayer to a singular God. To be reminded of your priorities, to come to you with boldness, with affection, dependent on you. And it's been good to sing. What a treasure of a gift you've given us in song and music. So that when there are things going on in our hearts that we have trouble expressing adequately through conversation, you've given us music to express in an emotive level the, the love and affection dependence we have on you. And thank you, Father, for the privilege of being reminded from your word of what your priorities are. Would you guide us in this hour? Would you transform us and change us? We pray this virtually every week, but we we need transformation. Whatever it is that you have changed in our lives and hearts, we need more of it. So would you produce more of it, even in this time together around your word? And would you be equipping us to be helpers of others so that they might change? And so, Father, would you guide us in this word in this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. What verse of Scripture or passage is of greatest priority to you, of, of, that, that has brought you the greatest joy, the greatest affection for Christ, that has helped you the most in crisis? What, what passage of Scripture Has God used in particular ways to bring you change, to to move your heart towards Him?
One of those passages for me is Psalm 19:14. Let the words of your mouth and the meditations of your heart, my heart, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That verse comes at the end of an extended passage about God's general revelation and then his special revelation in his word. And the psalmist is asking, Lord, would you make my words to conform to your word? As a guy who talks a lot, and I do talk a lot, both here and elsewhere, I need that. But that verse has not just helped me with that. But I love what the psalmist says, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. One of my struggles personally is I say too much. Anybody else have that affliction? I say too much. And I say things that are rolling around in my brain and they come out in wrong and sometimes hurtful ways. And I have used that verse to say, Lord, I not only want my words to confirm the authority of your word, but I want the way I think to conform. And I don't know how many times I've prayed on the basis of that verse, Lord, would you just, would you just change my thinking? It's, it, the words are, are getting more under control and I'm grateful, but I'm tired of thinking those snarky thoughts. Because even while I've joked about it saying I have the spiritual gift of snarky, it's not a spiritual gift. It harms and it hurts and I'm tired of it. What are, what are your influential verses? Among the verses that have changed us personally, there are also verses that have changed the church. Romans 1, 16 and 17 is one of those that has had massive influence on all of Christendom. Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man will live by faith. When Martin Luther read that verse, or those two verses, he bowed up. He hated them was convicted by them and frustrated by them. Listen to what he writes. I hated that word, righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically of the formal or active justice, as they called it, by which God is righteous and punishes sinners and unrighteousness. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt I was a sinner before God with a most disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I do not love, indeed I hated, the righteous God who punishes sinners. Secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. So he hears the word, the righteousness of God, and says, I'm a dead man because I'm not righteous God God demands that I'm righteous, and if I'm not, He's going to condemn me. And He hated that, and He hated God. And then He continues, Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. And then 
I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There, a totally other face of all scripture showed itself to me. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. Martin Luther's love for Romans 1.17 became the compelling point of the Reformation. And thousands, if not tens of thousands of churches and millions of people have been influenced by his meditation on that verse. The verse that is before us this morning, though perhaps not quite as dramatic as Martin Luther, has had a similar global impact on the church of Christ. For one man read Romans 15:14 and delved into its understanding and it revolutionized the way he thought about church and thought about ministry and has influenced hundreds if not thousands of churches nationwide and really around the world. Romans 15:14 transformed the life of J Adams and it has subsequently transformed many churches including Grace Bible Church of Granbury, Texas. It is that verse to which we come this morning. I noted that Paul in this verse is beginning to make his transition into his final comments, his benedictory comments. Before he gets to his final comments, he's talking about some of his personal plans. In verse 22, we'll see he's going to talk specifically about some of his intention to take the gospel to unreached places, particularly to Spain. And he's going to solicit the help of the Romans to accomplish that. Chapter 16, he's going to give many personal greetings, far more greetings than he gives in any other letter. And then the final verses, he'll give his benediction. But before he gets to that, he wants to affirm the the Romans for what is going on in their lives and give them some direction about where to go in ministry. What constitutes an appropriate biblical ministry, given what we have learned about God and his salvation in chapters 1 to 11, and given what we have learned about the application of that theology to the church in chapters 12 to 15? What do we do? Where do we go from here, from what we have learned? What does ministry look like? Paul will say it this way in these three verses. Be confident in God's provision to use you to serve his people. Be confident that God has gifted you with a means by which you can serve others in the body of Christ for God's glory. Where do we go from here? Quite simply, we go to service. We go particularly, not just to service in general, but we go to the spiritual care of souls. We go to, to building into each other spiritually, to guiding each other spiritually, or as we say it around here, to shepherding God's people by building into them so that they are nurtured in Christ, led to Christ, cared for 
by Christ. In these verses, the Apostle Paul provides both an exhortation to serve and an example of that service. In case you're watching the clock, just be aware. We're going to spend by far the bulk of the time on the first verse and then move much more rapidly through the last two verses. So be aware. I, I do have a clock right in front of me. I am watching. I have apportioned my time appropriately, I hope. What is the exhortation? He gives an exhortation to serve Christ's people. First exhortation, to serve Christ's people, be filled with his goodness. Be filled with his goodness. The Spirit of God produces fruit in his people, transforming them so that they don't sin and they do act in accord with the righteousness that God has provided for them. And and that's, that's all the Spirit's work. The Spirit is constantly working to transform us. And that's all of chapter 8. We don't have time to go back and unpack all of chapter 8 again. But just know, that's, that's in the background as Paul is making these statements in verse 14. And part of that process of transformation by the Spirit, we would call progressive sanctification. That is... It happens in an ongoing manner. So there's a sense in which God looks at us and he sees us as fully sanctified. He sees us with Christ's perfect righteousness. He sees us as full and complete. That has been attributed to us, accounted to us, reckoned to us, imputed to us. But the reality is different. So I can say I have the full imputation of Christ's righteousness. God sees me as fully sanctified. Regine does not see me as fully sanctified. And I demonstrate that on a far too regular basis. And sometimes we can look at that and we just say, am I ever going to change? Am I ever going to get over this hump, this difficulty, this trial, this, this gnawing struggle that I just always seem to have? And at other times, we make progress. And there have been some times when Regina has come to me and just said, hey, you're not asking, but I just want you to know, I've been seeing God work in your life. I'm seeing change in your life in this area. And man, doesn't that make your heart sing when people tell you that? And that's what Paul does for the Romans here in verse 14. Though he's never been to Rome, he knows of them. He knows many people in Rome and he knows of their reputation. And he has seen real noticeable change. And he commends them for it. And that's why he begins in verse 14. He says, concerning you, my brothers. Now, I've I've made all kinds of comments about how theology, chapters 1 to 11, is to be worked out in the church, chapters 12 to 15. But now let me talk about you particularly. Concerning you, my brothers, and he's in using that term, denoting the fellowship and the intimacy they have with one another. I myself also am convinced. I, I know this as, as much as we can see this in a human individual, as much as as much as we can observe. And certainly we don't know the hearts, but as much as we can know, he says, I, I'm convinced. That this is a reality in your life. Some commentators have suggested that Paul is using a false form of flattery in in an attempt to kind of manipulate the Romans to do what he wants them to do. That's not Paul's mode. 
That, that's not the way Paul operates. In fact, that's why one reason why we read the first few verses in chapter 1 earlier. He, he, he's already made mention of the fact at the beginning of the book that he has seen these things in them and that their, their reputation has gone worldwide. And in fact, the Apostle Paul, it's in Colossians, it's, it's in Ephesians, it, it's, it's even, it's in Thessalonians, a, a church that had struggled and was suffering. It's even in Corinth that Paul commends them for the, for the good that he sees in them. He's not a manipulative man. That's not how Paul operates. He's convinced that something good is working in them. What is he convinced of? Notice the text. I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. To say that they are full of goodness is to say that goodness is pervasive in their lives. He uses that same word full in chapter 1 verse 29 about the unregenerate. And he says they are full of evil. That That is... Evil is pervasive in their lives. And just as evil is pervasive in the life of the unbeliever, Paul says, goodness is pervasive in you. They are, they are outstandingly good. Now, what, what is this goodness that he is speaking of? And in fact, we just sang about the goodness that we have in, in the song, Blessed Assurance. And that, that song refers to the imputed goodness of Christ that is attributed to us. And certainly they had that. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about imputed goodness. He's talking about the reality of goodness being worked out in their lives. They're, they're doing moral and ethical things for others as an overflow of the Spirit of God in their lives. It's not just that they are good from an imputed righteousness of Christ's sense, they're, they're just good folk. They do good things for others. They're kind. They're generous. They're benevolent. They're loving. We, we would say, we, we'd look at them and we'd say, man, he's a good brother. He's a good sister. She's a good sister. And I've heard you say similar things about each other. Man, he's just, he's just a good brother. I'm, I'm seeing Christ in him. And it's interesting that, that after a lengthy section, starting at 14.1 through the middle of chapter 15, where Paul might be construed as being a little heavy-handed with the Romans, he's saying, hey guys, I'm seeing Christ working in you to such an extent that you're doing good for others. You're doing well. You're making progress. You're growing in Christ. You're being loving towards one another. You're doing the kinds of things that believers do for one another. And this goodness that the Romans experienced is not unusual. It's the kind of, it's the kind of thing that the Spirit of God produces in people. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness. If you have the Spirit of God living in you, this is what He produces. And Paul's telling them, this is exactly what is being produced in you. And brothers and sisters, as we serve, we can take that commendation that is being given to the Romans, and we can use it in two ways. One, I would echo what Paul says. 
that as I think about Grace Bible Church, this is one of the things I think. You are you're good. You're kind. I can I can pick up the phone and call and say, man, I need some help. Could you help me with? And invariably, it's like, well, yeah, of course I can. And have you thought about this and this? Could we also do this? You're generous and benevolent. You, you care for one another. You have a reputation in this community of being loving of one another. So I, I, I echo what Paul says about the Romans for you. But we can also take it in another sense, and this is what we need to be. As we think about ministry, as we think about caring of others, as we think about taking the gospel out, this is what we need to be. This is the goal. To serve Christ, we need to be filled with His goodness. There's another exhortation that Paul gives here, and that is to serve Christ's people, be filled with His knowledge. Paul is not only convinced that they are full of goodness, notice the middle of verse 14, also that they are filled with all knowledge. The the sense of the word filled, that's a verb in this case, is that they have been filled at some point in the past and they are continuing to be filled. So it's not like... um, It's not like my Diet Coke that is filled and about three minutes later, it's not filled. They are filled and they expend themselves in ministry and they maintain fullness and they minister more and they still are full and they minister more and they still are full. They know And they maintain that knowledge. Specifically, notice, he says that they're full, not just of goodness, but they're filled with all knowledge. That doesn't mean that they know everything. He's not saying you're a bunch of know-it-alls. He's not saying that they have a comprehensive knowledge of everything there is to know about God. But he is affirming you're a well-taught church. And you not only are well-taught, but you know And you respond to what you know. So you know what to do and you do what you know to do. And and we know that even from chapter 6. If you remember back when we were in chapter 6, he says in verse 17, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. So you were taught, you were trained, you were transformed. You, You do what you know. They act on what they know. He would commend the Thessalonians in a similar way. He would command the Colossians to be filled in a similar way. So Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. This, in fact, was one of Christ's own commendations of the apostles. John 17, his high priestly prayer, he says about the apostles, they have kept your word. Not only have they known what you have said, but they've kept it. They've obeyed it. That's what the apostles talking about. When he says this, there's another implied idea with this phrase, you're filled with all knowledge. And that implied idea is that we should know his word Because when we have the word within us, we have everything we need in order to live well. Now, he doesn't say that. But that's underneath what he is saying. He wouldn't commend them 
for knowing the Scriptures if there wasn't value in knowing the Scriptures. And the value of the Scriptures is that it applies to every circumstance of life. Now, the Scriptures don't ask answer every question about life. So when I was on Monday morning for three hours on the phone with a computer helpline trying to get rid of a couple of bugs on my computer. The scriptures don't help with that. The helpline didn't help either, but that's another issue. They don't tell how to fix my car. They don't tell how to bake biscuits. They don't tell how to invest money and which fund I should put my money in. But they do apply, the scriptures do apply to every circumstance. So the scriptures tell me how I'm supposed to respond when the computer helpline doesn't do what they're supposed to do. And they're a hindrance more than a help. And the scriptures tell me how I'm to think about my finances, both when I send some to the mechanic and and some when I try and send to the bank and invest. How am I to think about those things? And the scripture tells me how I'm to think about food and and every other circumstance of life. So Paul says, um, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that every word of God, every, every aspect of the scriptures is inspired by him. It comes from him so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every Good work. Everything that's good to do, this book will tell you how to do it. So there's value in this book. And as we think about ministry, as we think about helping one another, we do well to ask, what do I know? Do I know this book? And what do I do about what do I know, what I know in this book? Now, there's always going to be a little bit of a disconnect between what we know and what we do. That's our fleshly nature, right? So we're not going to, we're not going to do it perfectly. But what's the trajectory? Which way am I headed? What's my longing? What's my desire? What's my point of submission? Am I allowing God to work in my life in the way He intends to work? Do I want this? To serve Christ's people. Be filled with His knowledge. Thirdly, to serve Christ's people, admonish with his wisdom. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. He is confident also that they are able to admonish one another. That word admonish has a really broad range of meaning. Um, It includes teaching, so informing. It also has the sense of exhortation. But... Exhortation can sometimes have the idea of, hey, brother, hang in there. Um, God's on his throne. How many times has that been said in the last 20 months? God's on his throne. We're going to get through this. We'll get to eternity and COVID will be gone, I promise. So there's that kind of exhortation. But there's also the kind of exhortation that moves beyond that to correction, to rebuke, and even to warning. It's the kind of correction that moves someone from false living to true living. It, it's, it's the word, it, it's, it's the word actually, nutheteo, from which we get the word nuthetic counseling. It's the word that 
Jay Adams coined, actually, to refer to the kind of counseling that he did. It's, it's, it's a warning, call to action, get in your kitchen kind of a word. Someone has said that this word is brotherly, but it's big brotherly. It's the big brother telling the little brother, younger brother, Hey, bro, been down that path you're on, and um, that's going to lead you a bad place. Let me, let me show you a better way. Let's go this way and not that way. So it's that big brother, arm around the shoulder, compelling, pulling, at times arm twisting. And notice that the apostle says, That is what the Romans were doing. It was what their capability was. And they were doing it for one another. All of them have a capacity to nuthateo one another, to admonish one another. Sometimes you help me. Sometimes I help you. There's mutual care, mutual dependency on each other. And this reminds us of the necessity of everyone. It's not like someone is in the body but unnecessary or doesn't have a place. No, every person in the body has this ability to admonish, exhort, and lead someone in a new direction. Obviously, some will be more effective in that than others, but all of us have that capacity. All of us have that responsibility. And so around here, we say it this way. We believe in every member ministry. That's one of our core values. We believe that every member is, is equipped and responsible to engage in ministry. We all need to be active in caring for one another. Notice, Paul says also that you are able to admonish one another. They have capacity On what basis do they have a capacity to admonish one another? I think he's already told us. You're filled with all goodness and with all knowledge. They have practiced what they know, so they are morally good. They love one another. They care for one another. They're benevolent. And they know what to do. And they've practiced it. They've done it themselves. And that has equipped them to care for and admonish one another. And this is a reminder that we are all able to counsel one another. It all, it's a reminder that we, we're all required to counsel one another. We need to serve in the body. And we are able to serve in the body. This is a reminder the ministry is not for the professionals. Counseling isn't something that just the pastor does or the elders do. It's for everyone. The question is not, are you a counselor? The question is, are you a good one or a bad one? Because all of us counsel. All of us pour into each other's lives and tell us, hey, go this way. Hey, don't do that. Let me encourage you. Let me, let me change your thinking. Let me, let me help you discern. We're all doing that and we've all been called to it and we've all been equipped for it. The question is if we're doing it well. It's this clause that absolutely radicalized the way J. Adams thought about the church. He wrote this in his landmark book, Competent to Counsel, which gets its title from this verse. Paul recognized that any Christian may engage in neuthetic counseling so long as he possesses the qualities of goodness and knowledge. Any Christian worker 
may become a helpful counselor in the place where God has called him to serve. Anyone. You have the ability. Similarly, John MacArthur writes this. Paul's point in Romans 15, 14 is that through the word and his Holy Spirit, God had provided the church at Rome and will provide every godly congregation of believers everything needed to live faithfully, to live effectively, and to live joyfully for him. His specific point is that apart from the particular gifts of the Spirit, all faithful Christians are divinely equipped to admonish one another as needs and opportunities arise among them. The Romans had set an example for others in this. So what the Romans were doing provides a model and an exhortation to us for what we ought to be doing and how we ought to be thinking about ministry. So, let me give you three implications of this. One, if we, want to pe- if we want people to be good followers of Christ, it requires us to be good people to lead them. You can't be unkind, mean, belligerent, bad, and evil and produce good disciples of Christ. You can't be mean and belligerent towards others and, and cultivate a reputation for being loving in the community. And so if we're going to continue to care well for people on the trajectory which God has given to us, then it requires that we, we need to personally cultivate this quality of goodness, of care, of affection, of love for one another. Secondly, if we want people to be knowledgeable followers of Christ, then we need to be knowledgeable. You can't lead people where you haven't gone. You can't teach people what you don't know. And if you want to help people with the book, you have to know the book yourself. I have to know the book myself. Side shameless plug, if you have not been to our biblical counseling and discipleship training conference that is an outstanding place to learn how to care for other people, how to speak the word of God into their lives. Does it provide an opportunity for you to get the training you need to be a counselor behind a desk? Yes. But is that the way most of you are going to use it? No. You just need to know how to pour into those those three foot disciples in your home. That, that conference will train you to do that. You need to learn how to pour the truth of the scriptures into your next door neighbor or into the guy that shares a cubicle next to you. That conference will train you to do that. We just open the book, explain the book, and show you how to use the book to help people's lives. You need to know it. If we want people to know the book, then we need to know the book. And if we want people to be counseled, then we need to be intentional about cultivating those relationships. It has been said many times that no one is unintentionally holy. No one gets to holiness by accident. And it is also true that no one is discipled accidentally. If, if someone is going to be discipled, it is by intentionality, it is by purpose, it is by being aware of people's needs and looking for them. So brothers and sisters, let me just encourage you to continue, and I use that word intentionally, to continue 
to look for those who are struggling and hurting. When you have conversations today, and you just say in passing, hey, how's it going? Okay. Would you just stop and say, well, hey, I'm, I'm glad it's going okay, but I'm just sensing in the way you Eeyore-like said, okay, that maybe it's not okay? What's going on? What happened this week? Can I help you in some way? Can I pray with you? Can I pray for you? Just be listening and watching. People are telling us all the time when they're struggling. Sometimes with words. But you can see it. And be intentional to look for, to listen. And, um, and take the opportunity to pour into their lives. Paul talks in um, 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, the things you have heard from me in the presence of faithful, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul says, you heard it from me and you take what you've heard from me and you pass it to someone else who will be able to pass it to someone else. Four generations of spiritual interaction. We need people who are ahead of us, pouring into us. We need people alongside of us that we minister and serve with, and we need people that we're pouring into for the next generation. You need to be looking for those kinds of people, looking for those kinds of relationships. You need people in front of you, behind you, and behind you, beside you, and behind you. Are you looking for those, being intentional? And then are you having intentional conversations? Hey, listen, I'm, I'm all in on small talk. Small talk is fine. There's a sense in which small talk honors Christ. And um, when kids come to my office, they're not looking for a theological discourse on Romans 15. I wish that was true, but it's not. What are they looking for? Yeah, they're looking for a hug. They're looking, for, they're looking for chocolate or bubble gum. And I want to engage with them at their level. Hey, what's going on today? Hey, how'd you swim? What do you enjoy swimming? Um, how are the swim lessons going? What do you like playing after school? What's your favorite snack? Do you like chocolate? Do you like the dark chocolate? Do you like the chocolate that's a little bit bitter? Oh, good. I'm glad you don't like it. That's more for me. And when I engage with kids at that level or people at that level, you know what I'm doing? I'm telling them, you, you are important to me. And I've learned enough about you that I've talked about the things that are important to you. And so small talk can be redemptive in that it's communicating, I care. I love you. But then we also need to be intentional to move beyond the small talk, don't we? And so we say, hey, how'd how'd the week go at work? Oh, man, not so good. Oh, really? Tell me. And now we start moving into a second level. And we need to be intentional. We want to redeem ordinary conversations for spiritual purposes. You do that well. You do that well. And we need to continue to do that well. Paul gives himself as an example of this very thing. 
He was commending the Romans for doing what they were doing and subtly encouraging perhaps them and certainly us to do similar things. But he's not calling them to do anything different than what he did. Notice his example. His work for Christ was a gift from Christ. That's how he viewed it. But notice what he says in verse 15. I've written very boldly to you on some points. Um, some think he's kind of backpedaling here. I don't think he's backpedaling at all. There is wide discussion about what Paul means by the strong points. My own personal inclination is he's probably thinking about passages like Romans chapter 1. Man, that's harsh. I think he's thinking about the beginning of Romans chapter 2 when he takes to task the Jews who might think, that's right, Paul, give it to the Gentiles. They're wrong. They're sinners. They're evil. But we're okay because we're Jews. And Paul says, no, 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 not so fast. And spends the bulk of chapter 2 and chapter 3 talking about that. I think he might be thinking about all of the the may-it-never-be passages. Don't even think about doing that. Really, what, what he specifically has in mind here is irrelevant. I think what Paul is doing at the beginning of verse 15 is he says, I've written very boldly on some points so as to remind you again. I had to remind you. I spoke boldly. I didn't pull back. I didn't pull any punches. I told you the way it is. I did. Here's what's going on. I did the very thing I'm compelling you and commending you for doing. I've just said you're able to exhort, to admonish one another. And I have done that very thing for you. I've done that. I'm not asking you to do anything I haven't called myself to do or been called to do. And why have I done that? End of verse 15. Because of the grace that was given to me from God. Now, what was the grace that was given to him from God? It was the grace that made him an apostle. He's an, he's an apostle. He has a particular standing before God that was, that was unintended by him. He had no means or no way to ever anticipate that he would be an apostle. Yet God has made him an apostle so that he could serve others. And it's Paul way, Paul's way to say, look, I've received a grace from God to serve you, and I'm doing it. Because it's God's gift. And, and, and that's the way we serve others as well. We serve because we've been gifted by God. Listen, God has given, God has given you a gift. He's given me a gift. And how can we not use what he's given us? It's unimaginable to think that he has graced us with an ability by the spirit of God to serve his people and to be his agent in someone's life and not use it. That's Paul's example. He's he's working for Christ. He's admonishing for Christ because it's a gift from Christ. It's also it's also an act of worship. Verse 16. I do these things in order to be a minister for Christ Jesus. And actually in verse 16, he's going to use three words that denote worship. A minister for Christ. That that word um, talks about um, temple worship. 
or synagogue worship. It's a word that's used in the Greek Old Testament to refer often to the work of the Levites in the temple. So he's thinking not just of ministry as we think about it, but a particular kind of ministry in the context of worship. And then he says, I'm ministering as a priest. Not, he's not saying I am a priest, but he says, I'm doing the kind of work that a priest did. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a New Testament priest, as it were, so that the offering of the Gentiles, so that, so that my work as a priest is to bring the Gentiles as an offering of worship. So three words. Ministry, priesthood, offering. All of them focused on the fact Paul thinks about what he's doing as worship. It's worship. It's, it's his way of acknowledging, God, you've done something in me. Here's my response back as an act of giving you the worth so that I don't get the worth, so that I don't get the acclaim, but you do. And like Paul, when we involve ourselves in the lives of others, we are doing good and we are worshiping God. There's a third means by which Paul serves as an example. It's right at the end of verse 16. He gives the Gentiles, so his gospel influence on the Gentiles so that they become acceptable to God is his form of worship. And all of that work, he says, is sanctified by the Spirit. So what he is doing so that they become acceptable, so that they become sanctified, is accomplished by the Spirit of God. Interestingly, it's not just the Spirit of God who's at work in this verse. Notice at the beginning of the verse, I came to be a minister of Christ Jesus, middle of the verse, with the gospel of God, by, the end of the verse, the Holy Spirit. Christ, Father, Spirit. This is, this is a triune ministry. And he sees God as responsible for all of it. If, if, if the Gentiles are going to be sanctified, if the Gentiles are going to become acceptable to God, if the Gentiles are going to be converted, how's it going to happen? Through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, but by the Spirit. It's the Spirit who accomplishes these things. So we might say, we might say it this way. We are good, but it is the Spirit of God who is working His goodness in us. We are knowledgeable, but it is the Spirit's Word that is informing our minds and hearts. We exhort and we counsel, but it is the Spirit's work that brings transformation. And we work, but when we work, it's always the Spirit's Word. It's always the Spirit's work. Where are we going? We're going to serve. Where's Grace Bible Church going? We're going to serve. We're going to pour ourselves into people's lives. We're going to personally cultivate moral goodness and kindness. We're going to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as Peter says, For the purpose of exhorting, admonishing, discipling, counseling one another to grow in Christ Jesus. And we do that as an act of worship. Because the Spirit of God is changing us. At Grace Bible Church, we say it this way. We exist. That is, it is our passion 
It is the very reason for our presence in this community. We exist to shepherd God's people, to exhort, compel, admonish, encourage, lead, correct, direct. We exist to shepherd God's people and those who aren't yet God's people so that they can become God's people by God's grace for God's glory. Where are we going? We're going to be shepherds of God's flock because in God's amazing grace, that's what He's equipped us to be and to do. Father, thank You for how You used this one verse in one man's life to really radically change his own life and ministry and consequently change so many others. And thank You for how You've used his ministry to shape our ministry. And thank You for the fact that what could be said about the Romans can also, at least from our perspective, be said of us as well. That we're full of goodness and full of all knowledge. And we are able to exhort and admonish one another. And thank you that the members of this body have taken those examples and those exhortations seriously for so long. And might you and your grace continue to compel us to be committed to, to find joy in, to be transformed by this ministry of admonishment so that people will learn that there is only delight to be found in living for you and living for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.